1: Welcome back, everyone. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. If you would like to send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, Exxon Radio TV. And to find out about the programming we have available for you 24-7, 365 on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. My guest this hour, Exonation, Nation, is Raymond Shemansky, and he's an award-winning author and researcher. Raymond uh, is currently the undisputed expert on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and its heralded connection to extraterrestrials. In his 2016 published book, Fifty Shades of Grey, Evidence for Extraterrestrial Visitation to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and beyond, Szymanski reveals a myriad of photographic evidence he has personally taken and factual information he has developed from that supports long-held rumors of Wright-Patterson's alien in, uh, involvement. As a 40-year employee of the legendary Air Force Base, Raymond has unique first-person access to locations and individuals with information that eludes other accomplished researchers regardless of their pedigree. Joining me now is Raymond shamansky And Raymond, welcome to the Exxon.
2: Hey, thanks, Rob. Just delighted to be here.
1: Well, we're super glad that you're here, my friend. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and where your interest in extraterrestrials comes from.
2: The first week that I was a co-op student at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base was January of 1973. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a mentor who was assigned to me that I write about in the book. And I call him Corvette Al because he would not permit me to use his last name for reasons I'll explain later. So he said, hey, look, at, you're the new guy. I'm going to show you where the Greasy Spoon Cafe is. And it was out our building through this dark, unused hangar and into another section of this very large complex. Mm-hmm. And as we stepped into this very empty, dark hangar, he turns to me and said, have you heard about our aliens? And I know I'm a kid from Detroit, you know, yeah. 19. I didn't know aliens. So I said, what, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, there was a crash out west and they bought the aliens machine and the aliens here for evaluation. And I said, oh, really? He said, um, yeah, he said they keep them in the tunnels. And to which I replied, we have tunnels? You know, imagine, this is my first week at a, a place that has over 600 buildings and 8,000 acres. Wow. So the conversation went on, and uh, I said, well, can we go see these aliens in the tunnels? He said, no. Well, why not? Well, because it's a secret. (laughs) And I had to laugh. I said, well, if it's a secret, how do you know about it? Exactly. And he said, well, everybody knows about it. It's kind of a general population secret. Hmm. So, you know, I learned more, and I asked folks about it. But in 1973, you know, Blue Book had already been there for over 20 years. So everyone was knowledgeable about the connection between Wright-Patterson and the Roswell crash wreckage, which actually was taken there and was evaluated there. So I think it was just one of those, yeah, we know wright Pat's connected to aliens, and our belief is that they're hidden somewhere on base, maybe not necessarily in the tunnels. And that's where it all started
1: fascinating uh if if somebody would have asked me if i seen the aliens being from detroit i would have said sure the canadians come across the uh, bridge all the time
2: (laughs) that's right for for cheap shoes they're shopping at sears (laughs)
1: that's right that's right not to mention the cheap booze as well what do you think is going to happen with the trade war between canada and the united states now isn't that isn't that stupid
2: uh, you know, I'm actually living in a in a dark hole in my basement, so I, I don't really watch the news. I don't watch national news. I don't Dearest. watch local news. And, you know, you could tell me that we were at a real war with each other. I honestly wouldn't be aware of it.
1: <laughs> you're a very smart man. Um, you're a photojournalist.
2: Yes. How does this tie into your book? A lot of the books uh, you'll find are just nothing but narrative mm-hmm. and it'll be, be nice to get a little you know evidence to kind of visualize what's going on and sink your teeth into it so when I say I was with Travis Walton at the site of his abduction on this day in 2015 I have a photograph of myself and Travis Walton at his abduction site on that date published in the book and I, I do that for just about everything because I think it adds credibility And it says, hey, you know, if you don't agree with me or you think I'm blowing smoke, well, here's my best evidence. Go ahead and try to refute it. And I find that a lot of folks are telling stories in their books. And I've actually called out a couple of authors and and pointed out stories that I knew were false. And they just kind of blew me off. But, you know, in one case, it was a story about uh, a person who was actually my boss at Wright-Patterson, and I called the uh, co-authors on that, and they just went, oh, well, you know, we had a source, and he was unreliable, and did they do anything about it? No. So I like to put some extra evidence in there to build the credibility of the stories that I tell in the book. Um,
1: why did you write a book about UFOs? You know, you, you could have written a book about so many other things. Was it the direct connection with Wright, uh,
2: Wright-Patterson? I had been reading and researching this topic for decades, and I started to visit, back in about 2005, I started to visit a number of the famous UFO sites, just as a curiosity, to kind of go, okay, I want to poke my fingers into this thing. I want to see if I can find some new witnesses, maybe uh, some old witnesses, Mm -hmm. some older new evidence. I I wanted to convince myself that the stories that I'd been hearing for decades on the base had some substance to them.
1: Did you find a connection in between all those locations that you visited? Was there, you know, being there, taking the photographs that you have, is there a connection? Or are these just sporadic locations where these extraterrestrial events took place?
2: Well, let's look at three of the four stories that i investigate i investigate the 1965 exeter new hampshire uh, 1975 travis walton and 1980 Rendlesham forest so in the first instance i went to exeter and in the book incident at exeter written by john fuller famous Mm -hmm. book about it i actually was able to find through my own research and some clues in the book The site, the actual site where Norman Muscarello in in September of 1965 saw a 90-foot UFO hovering over this farmhouse. So I go to this farmhouse, and who answers the door but the son of the man who owned the farm during the time that John Fuller wrote his famous book? And at the the time, this guy was uh, uh, 80 years old. 80 plus years old. And he toured me around his, his, the farmhouse and pointed the area over the house and the, the uh, garage and said, that's where Norman saw the 90 foot UFO. Wow. That rock wall over here is where he dove behind, took me to the back property and said, this is where the UFO was hiding out uh, during the day. So uh, I, I found that Uh, The connection, there was always a witness who would talk to me, even though, you know, they had gotten it secondhand. He obviously wasn't out there with Norman. And I did that for everything. Of course, I went to Travis Walton's site with Travis, Mm -hmm. and I went uh, to Rendlesham Forest to investigate. And I've had personal conversations with some of the key players, including Colonel Halt and John Burroughs uh, of the famous Rendlesham incident.
1: But isn't there a a discrepancy in the Randlesham Forest on how it was actually uh, put together in the
2: book? Well, it depends on what book you're talking about. Uh, If you're talking about uh, Left at Eastgate, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of controversy there because many people, including Colonel Halt, who was the deputy base commander, he says Larry Warren, who is one of the co-authors of the book, wasn't there. He did not participate, and he got his stories through everybody else. But the The story that Holt, Burroughs, Penniston, Cabin Sag, the guys that were out there those nights and were basically on duty, uh, their stories are immutable, and for the most part, they sync up.
1: Yeah, I remember uh, Holt being on uh, a different perspective with Kevin Randall and uh, Kevin, you know, bringing that topic up. Do you find this happens a lot in ufology?
2: That what happens a lot. You know, there's
1: a lot of contradiction in, even in between the alleged people who are part of the case.
2: Well, let's take Rendlesham. I've had um, healthy conversations with Colonel Halt and John Burroughs and mm-hmm. I've communicated with Jim Penniston right. uh, via email and their stories fully sync up. I've read uh, the book that Burroughs, Peniston, and Nick Pope put together. It jives with everything I've heard it's a very very consistent story and there's too many witnesses there are all right you and I have to take witnesses.
1: our commercial break please stand by exon nation our guest sure. this hour is Raymond shamansky and his website is www.it's a we'll both be back on the other side of this break as we continue here in the exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton Ontario Canada don't go away Welcome back everyone. Raymond Szymanski is our special guest this hour. His website is it's a ufo.wixsite.com and he's the author of 50 shades of gray evidence of extraterrestrial visitation to Wright Patterson Air Force Base and beyond. Um, before we went to the break, we were talking about oh, I was talking about inconsistencies and uh, you were telling us about the consistencies that you found in the Randolph Forest case.
2: Yes, um Again, I've had a, a wonderful opportunity to actually speak with two of the principals mm-hmm. and communicate uh, somewhat extensively through email uh, with, with the uh, the third. Right. And all the material is pretty consistent. But there is some inconsistencies between what Larry Warren and his co-author wrote in Left at Eastgate and the story of the folks who have the records and can prove that they were actually out in the forest that night. Larry has some uh, evidence to show that he was on the base, but it, it, it seems like nobody's vouching for him actually uh, being there. And uh, his co-author has recently disavowed him and said, you know, I I was a fool for decades, and now I realize that Larry uh, was not uh, being forthright, okay. and, you know, I can no longer back a story. I'm not passing judgment on Larry Warren or Left at East Case, and I, I really, really enjoyed the book, but— uh, there has been some some facts apparently coming out that uh, prove that uh, the book left at Eastgate uh, probably has a, a few things that were fabricated by the by the authors.
1: What does that do to the UFO community and other UFO authors like yourself?
2: Well, you know, I think it it casts uh, a shadow on us because uh, I, you know I myself have found reputable uh, researchers. Uh, I'm talking. People who do every weekend, they're out at a conference and they're a headliner. And, uh, you know, a couple of them, I've pointed out uh, errors in the book of fabrications or just, you know, sloppy research. Sure. And they don't, uh, you know, it's like, hey, we're selling books. Shut your mouth. And, you know, so I haven't really made it public. But uh, for those people, I personally uh, have lost uh, respect for them. Uh, and there's others that I know are high integrity. And those are the people that I tend to hang with or I tend to communicate with. So, uh, you know, it's not all bad, but, no. you know, they should clean up their act a little bit. And I think it, it maybe will cast a, a, a shadow on, on the rest of us.
1: All right. You you gave us three stories. Uh, the Exeter, the Travis Walton, abduction case in Randlesham Forest. On each one of the cases, based on the research that you have done, what are your conclusions let's take exeter was it a ufo uh
2: there's no doubt that when you take into consideration the first night with norman muscarello who not only saw it once but he saw mm-hmm. it twice the second time he saw it he was in the company of two police officers david hunt and eugene bertrand so it's a no-brainer that the police officers had absolutely no reason to say uh, Gee, Scratch, Scratch Tolan was their uh, desk officer. Gee, Scratch, Uh, we were out there and and we saw this UFO. In fact, the moment they saw it, Bertrand got on uh, the walkie-talkie and was communicating back to the desk and he goes, Scratch, I see the damn thing myself. And then, you know, in the book, there were dozens and dozens of witnesses that were being interviewed by uh, John Fuller. So, you know, that's a a slam dunk. Uh, If you look at Travis Walton, he had six people in the truck uh, the moment they saw the 30-foot craft that eventually zapped Travis and took him away for five days they all passed multiple lie detector tests flawlessly Uh, there was one inconclusive and there was a a reason for that this one guy was in trouble and you know he thought he was going to go to jail but Travis's story has never changed uh he has written one of the finest books ever the fire in the sky especially the last 100 pages, which debunks all the debunkers. And he goes into the story of how uh, guys like Philip Klass tried to uh, change the story and, you know, make life miserable f- for Travis. Read those 100 pages and you will come away with a fabulous appreciation of, uh, you know, Travis's story. And then Rendlesham, you know, I talked to the participants and I've communicated with others clearly two dozen Security police and senior officers in the U.S. Air Force would not concoct a story about a UFO. In fact, you would expect just the opposite, that they would deny it to, the end, to, to their grave. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case. So for me, it was a journey of I wanted to poke holes in these stories, and I didn't care which way it came out. If I found people were lying or the evidence was being fabricated uh, or it just wasn't true— I was fine with that, but that didn't turn out to be the case.
1: Why do you think the uh, the officers involved in the Randlesham case actually went public with it?
2: Uh, Colonel Halt actually didn't go public. Uh, he wrote a letter to the Ministry of Defence uh, probably a couple of weeks after it happened. I think there might have been like ten or twelve days mm-hmm. lapsed between the actual ending of the events and when the MOD got the letter, and it was highly classified, but there was a Freedom of Information Act request. And there was a failure on the part of the person who was processing it to realize what they were releasing. So it was pretty much a mistake. And once the HALT memo was public, then it was open. So it was never meant to be public. But once once it happened, they all backed up their stories and said, yep, that that's the way it went down.
1: Tell us about your MIB encounters.
2: Well, there's a um, organization here at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base that ran Project Blue Book and it's called the Foreign Technology Division. Now it's called the National Air and Space Intelligence Center or NASIC. So they have a different acronym. But back when it was FTD, They ran Project Blue Book and was supposed to be investigative, turned out to be more public relations. Mm -hmm. And of course, they do highly classified work. I mean, just the name foreign technology or national air and space intelligence gives you the clue that they're doing important things that they're probably not going to tell the public about. Well, one day I was out on the golf course, which borders the building, and there was a gentleman who was in the shade of the tree. And um, I got into a conversation with him. He had the men in black suit. He had a hat on, you know, the the typical MIB hat. It was May, so it was super hot. And, you know, in in Dayton, we can get to the 90s easily in late May. So it was super hot, and, and he was just, like, totally not dressed for the weather. So I engaged him in this, you know, hypothetical are you a man in black and do you work there at this building which you know I know is the former FTD and of course he denied it and we had this conversation well months pass and of course my book is published um, there's a a dis- long distance picture of of him in there and there's no way he can be ID from that um, I got a communique from somebody who said hey I've got another picture of that guy would you like to have it hmm. And they sent it to me. And indeed, it's a picture of this guy actually walking into that building. And he is dressed precisely black hat, black tie, black coat. Now, is he a man in black?
1: Well, based on what he's wearing, sure he is.
2: Based on what he's wearing, walks like a duck, you know, talks like a duck, he's most likely a duck. I honestly don't know. I've had people who work in that building or who who know the individual have contacted me and said, read your book. I just want to tell you, you know, I know he dresses weird, but I don't have any evidence of him being one of these intimidators that go out and try to hide evidence of of UFOs that they're reputed to be doing. But then again, I just say, well, explain to me why the guy dresses like that. So. The jury is still out, but, you know, I've had this conversation. He's denied it. But when I look at him and I talk to him, my suspicions are raised significantly.
1: You know, earlier in this hour, you mentioned the tunnels beneath Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Have you ever gone into those tunnels and have you, in fact, seen these crashed uh, debris? Uh,
2: Absolutely, I've been in tunnels. And, you know, we have... Vaults that go into tunnels and tunnels that go into vaults and every combination. Uh, I'm afraid I wasn't privileged enough to see any aliens. Mm. uh, But they're – and they're mostly uh, pedestrian connective tunnels or, you know, they run uh, heat pipes and electricity and, you know, mostly utilities uh, through the tunnels. Even though some of them you can literally walk through. So nothing sinister And if you're at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, you know the reputation of the base. They do highly classified work. You would be shocked if they didn't have tunnels, if they didn't have vaults.
1: Well, of course, you know, who wants the spy satellites from the other countries knowing what you're doing? It only makes sense.
2: Yeah, if, if that's, if that's yep. the purpose of the tunnels, uh, that's fine. But, you know, the tunnels I've been in, I, I haven't really seen any, you know, research equipment sitting there in, in the pedestrian thoroughfare. Now, it may be in one of the vaults that's in that hallway, of course.
1: Stand by, my friend. You and I have to take our commercial break with the news at the bottom of the hour. ExoNation, our guest this hour, is Raymond Shemansky. And uh, his website is a UFO. And I'll be back on the other side of this news break with Raymond as we continue talking about his book, Fifty Shades of Grey, Evidence of Extraterrestrial Visitation to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and Beyond. This is the Exxon, a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality, Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern, Here on the Exxon Broadcast Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, Simul Radio, Simul TV, and iHeart Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back after the news. Welcome back everyone. Our guest this hour is Raymond Shamansky. His website is it's a Your book's been endorsed by four world class UFO researchers. Can you tell us a little bit about them and how they came to endorse your book?
2: When I first start attending the International UFO Congress, I try to seek out the best people. Uh, for that category. So, you know, Nick Pope mm-hmm. had his his uh, pulse on all things British. Um, Yvonne Smith was the world's one of the world's premier hypnotic regressionist. Uh, Paul Davids was very well known. He was a UFO Hall of Famer, well known for uh, his work uh, on the movie Roswell. And uh, Preston Dennett uh, for his work in uh, undersea UFOs, but more specifically his uh, book, UFOs over Topanga Canyon. So as I had the opportunity uh, to meet them, I socialized with them, uh, asked them a lot of intelligent questions and uh, communicated with them in between these uh, conferences uh, via email, sometimes via telephone. And um You know, the way that I got to to actually, you know, the, the moment that I decided to write the book on UFOs is I was at that Travis Walton site with Travis in February of 2015. And something just clicked where I said, you know, I have all this good stuff, all this great information I think that needs to get out there. And the fact that Travis let me drive him in a four-by-four, slip-sliding through the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest on three inches of mud Hmm. to go do a photo shoot and, and, you know, visit his site. It, It just, I just felt at that moment that, you know, I was part of this community, And uh, one thing led to another. I uh, gave uh, the manuscript to these individuals. Uh, They read it. They gave me great comments, uh, some criticisms, and eventually uh, they just agreed to uh, support the book. They thought it was uh, great. It was, you know, revealing. It's a UFO expose, it's a quest for the truth, it's a coming-of-age story, it's funny, Uh, and they just took to it. So uh, they welcomed me with open arms, and I'm extremely grateful uh, for their support.
1: I understand that you had your uh, very own UFO encounter experience or sighting.
2: I did, and when I look at the path that the UFO was on. Now, I live only a few miles from the Air Force Base, mm-hmm. uh, Wright-Patterson. And I was coming back from a therapy appointment. I had a car accident in and, and, uh, 2010. And I was coming back from a medical appointment. And I looked through, um, something caught my eye uh, through the moonroof of my car. And I put my head down through the windshield looking forward. And I saw a craft, a, it's hard to describe now, but somewhat scalloped with large uh, lights like you would see on a, a 1960s era Chevrolet called cat-eye lights. And I, I got about a seven-second view of this maybe 100-foot craft slipping into these clouds that were only about 75 feet off the deck that day.
1: Is it possible that this craft was an experimental craft?
2: Well, they don't fly experimental craft here at Wright-Patterson for the simple reason that the entire base is surrounded by communities, literally like the graveyard of Fairborn, Ohio, mm-hmm. sits one inch on the other side of, of one of the fences of, at, at Wright-Patterson. And then Beaver Creek is, is next to the other one. And then Huber Heights. And it's totally surrounded. And there's no space to do that. And, you know, it's, it's not one of those places. So, um, but if it is, if it is ours... If that craft is ours, then we ought to make it public, and we ought to point to it and tell the world, we own this, and if you mess with us, this is what you're going to get.
1: Why do you think there's a there's a truth embargo in place when it comes to UFOs and DTs?
2: Wow. You know, I really wish I had the answer to that. I'll speculate mm-hmm. if you okay, like.
1: Okay, please, yeah.
2: The first thought that comes to my mind is, is we've got this carcass with technology that's so far advanced and that we've been reverse engineering this carcass for decades. But
1: how do we know we actually have the carcass?
2: Well, we've, we've recovered crafts or there are, I guess, well-traveled stories about the material at Roswell that was recovered and Aztec and, and, and other locations that okay. we've basically recovered these. So, um, using that as a, as a stepping off point, mm-hmm. we'd analyze it and, and we would actually try to exploit it. And there's a lot of narrative out there about, well, Bell Labs, uh, and did they indeed get the material from Roswell ceded to them from Colonel Corso? Uh, he wrote the book, Day After Roswell. And if you're familiar with that, Corso goes on to say, hey, A lot of the stuff that we're now using now, although it might be 10, 20, 30 years later, we gave these raw materials to these very smart companies and they eventually figured out how to exploit it and voila, now we had the transistor and integrated circuit and, and lasers and fiber optics and all those type of things that maybe we wouldn't have gotten to for another 100 years. But
1: isn't it also possible that these are actually... Uh, discoveries made by humans and have nothing to do with ETs.
2: You know, it's entirely possible. Mm -hmm. I have actually gone back to the folks in the U.S. Air Force that I knew personally that worked in my building that that brought companies like Texas Instruments out of the Stone Age with transistors and funded them to develop the first integrated circuits. Mm -hmm. And those people tell me, you know what? we did it ourselves we didn't have any um, any help yeah well that may be true when they came on the scene but if you look at the Bell Labs thing Bell Labs were struggling uh, for how to dope the transistor what kind of chemicals to use so that they, they could control the electron flow uh, in in the transistor and it wasn't until after the summer of 1947 when of course Roswell happened that somebody got smart and says, Oh, we need to use arsenic as a doping material or whatever it was. Sure. And voila, they overcame this technical hurdle. Next thing you know, we've got a functioning transistor. But coincidence? Yeah. Not sure. Not sure. You know, there's a lot of
1: circumstantial evidence with all of the UFO scenario, but when it comes to hard fact, hardcore evidence, there's very little.
2: I have to agree. There is. There is a, a ton of narrative, yes. there's a ton of depositions, um, and that's why there's researchers like myself you know, in the field with metal detectors going to reputed crash sites uh, looking for something that might be testable.
1: So, all these years that you've been going to crash sites, have you found any evidence?
2: Um, actually, I've only been going to craft sites for two years, okay. and two um, years. I currently don't have any test results that indicate that uh, any materials that I either found myself or mm-hmm. others have bequeathed to me um, show anything that I can pound my hand on the table and go, yeah, this is this is irrefutable. But there's always hope.
1: That's true. There's always hope. Why do so many people believe that the aliens are responsible for so many of of modern day technology I I, I I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that that we would rather give credibility to aliens or spacecraft that nobody can prove actually exist and take the glory and the and the good work done by many people.
2: Rob, all we needed was the knowledge of what chemical to use mm-hmm. to, to dope the substrate, and the transistor was born. It was just a little clue, and we're off and running. And the same thing with everything else. No, the aliens didn't give us integrated circuits. Mm-hmm. No, they maybe didn't give us laser technology nor nor uh, uh, fiber optics, but there was enough clues there that we went oh well if we can do it make one transistor we can make a million of them oh wait a minute there's this thing here it's silicon well that's odd what's that all about okay so
1: i i understand i understand yeah. where you're going i understand where you're going they
2: just gave us the building blocks
1: but we don't know that for a fact that no, is a don't. giant leap in supposition and i couldn't
2: agree i couldn't agree more
1: and and you know what how do we know if if somebody could travel across the galaxy through different universes, how do we even know that they need transistors? You know, we're, we're making a lot of suppositions here. And I think that this is what people are having problems with when it comes to the UFO community is, it's a lot of smoke. But where's the fire?
2: No, there's a really a lot of good solid research there. I mean, let's look at the um, abduction phenomena. You have hundreds if not thousands of individuals Mm -hmm. with medical, clinical, um, psychological evidence that they bring forward. They say, look, um, I had a pregnancy. I have a conscious recollection of uh, uh, creatures that I don't recognize my neighbors saw the craft land in my backyard. There's radiological evidence. They burned the hole. The Geiger counter, you know, went off mm-hmm. off the charts. Uh, f- four months later, I go to my gynecologist and they cannot explain where the baby is.
1: All right, we're going to hold it right there because I've got to take my final break. Exo Nation, our guest this hour is Raymond Shemansky. His website, www.itsaufo.wixsite.com. And we'll wrap up this hour here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, when we come back from this commercial break. I'm Rob McConnell. This is the X-Zone. Don't go away.